Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. everyone and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am actually taping this show in December, but because this is airing in January, it's actually kind of my birthday. And I have to say, it's sort of exciting to get to feel like it's your birthday without actually turning a year older, because I haven't yet, so... (laughs) Just sharing that with all of you. Um, We have a big show for you today. We are going to be talking about test optional policies, why you maybe shouldn't take the first offer you get from a college. Uh, And before we get to that, we are going to be talking about MBAs with my friend who um, works at Fortuna Admissions and is a former admissions officer at Penn and also did admissions at the graduate level for the Wharton School of Business, um, Judith Silverman-Hodara. Hi, Judith. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, and thanks again for joining us today. Really appreciate it. I'm so glad to, to be with you all, and it is 23 degrees where I am, so I was kind of excited to have an opportunity to stay indoors and talk to you all <laughs> about right. the MBA process. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's excellent. So we are, you know, we do aim to please and and not make Thank any you. of the podcasts outdoors. Um, so <laughs> why don't we start with something really basic, and that is really what is an MBA? So an MBA is a graduate level course, which can run anywhere from a year to 18 months to two years for full-time programs, part-time programs can be a little bit longer, that is designed to teach business fundamentals, leadership, and teamwork to students that are interested in pursuing those basic fields. Um, I know that's kind of a very broad brushstroke because these, uh, these programs also teach things like management and real estate and communication. Generally speaking, though, um, the MBA is acknowledged as being a graduate degree for those that are interested in, uh, again, in leadership. Uh, it is somewhat akin to going to law school or med school for folks that are, that are really interested in diving deeper into topics that they might have experienced professionally or academically on the undergraduate level. Right. So what's interesting about the analogy you just made and that it being similar to law school or medical school, there is one key difference, right, which is that you cannot practice law if you don't have your law degree and pass the bar. You cannot be a doctor if you don't have your medical school degree and pass all of the hurdles that are required there to actually be a practicing doctor. In the case of an MBA, you can certainly work in business without an MBA. And so I think my next question for you is, why might a student be interested in eventually getting an MBA? You know, what kinds of things do you learn that would make it a really nice compliment and make it a a good thing to have, even though it's not necessarily a requirement to have it? You have a perfect point there. And I think that individuals certainly can go through their entire professional careers that may be business-focused without that MBA. Usually, students that are going for the MBA will have been out of undergrad for a few years at least, and they're looking to further develop abilities and talents, 
that perhaps they didn't have the time or the inclination to do as undergrads in the business sphere. So let's say you're working as an analyst uh, at an investment bank, and you may be gaining a tremendous amount of tactical skills, but you might not be developing as much on the leadership front as you would hope. You might have a network that's comprised of other people that you work with on a daily basis but maybe your network isn't a global one or doesn't go across many industries. Um, You may find that, well, I'm an analyst at a bank, but I'm really, really interested in supply chain. I don't exactly know how to get over to supply chain. (laughs) So someone that's thinking about an MBA may be looking at it for a number of reasons. They may be considering it because they're in a field that they really like and they want to dive deeper into that field. They are in a kind of position where they feel like they're not making that much progress on the leadership front, and they would sort of like to have some more formal training on leadership um, and, and leadership skills to allow them to progress to the next level. They're in a field that they like but don't love, and they're thinking about, well, what else is out there? And who's going to hire me if I don't have applicable skills in a totally different industry? So how mm-hmm. can I sort of gain exposure um, and gain that, that ability to look over there? And really, I would love to be in school with 300 other really smart and talented people that are coming from very different backgrounds. So how am I going to engage with them? Um, how am I going to sort of open up my worldview a little bit? So, so many reasons that, that individuals will consider the MBA. Um, and it's, it's not always about making yourself better at X, but it might be, as many folks will say, building a toolkit that will make you better at X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, and E as well. So it's really a broadening and a deepening of, of your skills and of your ability to, to be in, in the business world. And it, and it does say to future employers that you should have all of those skills, right? So it's a, it's a pretty nice shorthand to say, you know, I have a grounding in, in a lot of different areas because I have my MBA. Here's some of my specific experience, but it says something to the future employer when they see that MBA that they know they've got other stuff as well, even if it isn't certain, even if it isn't immediately evident in the in the resume itself. Yeah, I would agree with you. And it's it's hard to sort of when you look at someone and you look at a job that they have, and they look you look at their resume and you look at their skills. You can you know your their skills are sort of what what you tell them. But then you're correct. You know, in an MBA, we have a ton of individuals that are that are transitioning, for example, out of the military. So they have a wealth of leadership, a wealth of skills, but it might not always look transferable to someone in a, if they want to you know, get a position in a civilian opportunity out of the military. But the MBA signals to an employer, they have all of these skills that they've learned and they're bringing with them. And then they've also had this exposure to seven other things or 10 other things um, that are really important to making wise business decisions. So it's, it, it really can help to sort of bridge that gap and to signal, as you said, to an employer, yes, really good at this specifically, but also have had tremendous exposure to these other areas as well. Right. And and I think that's super helpful to the, for the broader understanding of why someone would go back and get an MBA, because I do um, talk sometimes to students and parents who the student is planning to pursue business as an undergrad. And um, it's not, sometimes it's the student, but sometimes it's the parent. But I hear some version of, well, the goal is to do this now, and that way I don't have to get an MBA later. And, you know, that my response is always, well, that absolutely is maybe a choice you're going to make, but maybe not. And I wouldn't be 
I wouldn't assume that just because you major in, in business as an undergrad that that will preclude you from needing or wanting the MBA later on. Um, exactly, so, exactly. Because yeah. when you assume or you know that, the, you know, the kids and students go into undergrad at 17, 18 years old, most of our clients at Fortuna are somewhere between the ages of 25 and 29. Yes. So that's oh. a whole seven to 10 years of, of experience that you've had. And then figuring out how does how does that experience then parlay into your next professional opportunity? And I think that that's really important. It may be that you develop terrific skills as an undergrad, but that working for three or four years, you find that you need a different set of skills, or you need more collaboration ability, or you need more you know leadership, or you need to be able to sit in front of a nonprofit board. There's so many reasons that the same way you're not the same person as when you enter college as when you leave. You are really not the same person when you leave college and when you, you know, look back five years from that and say, okay, well, where am I professionally and where do I want to go? Right. And then, of course, there is always the the chance that you might want to work for an organization where for the level or the position that you aspire to, they are they want an MBA and they may require it or they may really expect it. And you may not even be able to get in the door to talk to them about your skill set without that um that piece of paper. So um, other reasons, lots of reasons, I think, in the end, why you'd want to get an MBA. So with that in mind, how can a student learn more about the programs that are available? And then even more importantly, understand if which ones are the right ones for that student? So there are lots of different ways to approach this, and at Fortuna, we work with individuals that are undergrads that are thinking about applying as seniors that might do what's called a, a deferred, deferred admission program, a 2 plus 2 program, they're also known as, uh, and then for folks that are also thinking about, okay, well, I've got the time now to take the GMAT or the GRE. I'm going to apply in three or four years, but I sort of would like to get a couple of things you know, under my belt. I also have the luxury of maybe visiting some schools at this point or beginning to understand what the different schools offer and what the cultures are like. So much like the process of going through the undergraduate application and really having that be a journey where you didn't wake up one day and decide that this is it, school X is for me, it was a learning experience of gathering information. And, and I used to say to students, and I'm sure you do too, Beth, it's really good to know what you don't like. You know, so yes. if you have a very visceral reaction of, you know, oh, that is so not the culture I want to be a part of, then that's really informative for you as a, as a student. And it's distilling down what does make a good fit for you. Is it location? Is it size? Is it ethos? Do you feel like other people that you've interacted with kind of understand where you're coming from? Or are they all speaking in a kind of a culture or a language that doesn't really appeal to you? And I really tell, tell students that are going through this, that are seniors in, in college or, you know, a couple of years out, always good to talk to as many people as you can. Talk to recent graduates. Talk to current students. And you certainly want to talk to people that graduated 10 years ago because eventually that will be you. So you want to find out about their experiences, the things they wish they had known, how did they make their decisions. Yes, there are some very pragmatic things you can do in the process. As I mentioned, get the GRE out of the way or the GMAT when you're in study mode as an undergrad, but really thinking about what are the things that are important to me from a cultural standpoint. I know I might be starting a job. Is, do I imagine that in a few years I'd like to transition into something else? And getting a very strong sense 
by going to visit, asking questions, attending webinars, um, which you can certainly do from the comfort of your living room, you know, how does this school sort of appeal to me? And much like you all went through this, you started with a college list of 25 schools, I'm guessing. At the end of the day, you probably were down to somewhere between seven and nine. And for those oh, of you hopefully. lucky ones, you were probably down to five, five or eight, hopefully. <laughs> so the right. same thing goes on with, with graduate students as well. Um, and that's really a terrific process. The last thing I'll say on this is if you go to an undergraduate university that has a business program now, sit in on a class. Go talk to a faculty member. Find out what it's like to, you know, business school, yes, the cultures are all different from one another, but you just sort of want to put yourself in that environment for, for a class or two and, and, and sort of see what it feels like to be there. Um, and it is no, never too early to start that process, even if it's something that ultimately you don't end up applying for five more years, it's still good to, you know, begin, begin thinking about it and thinking about fit early on. Well, right. And I, and I do want to highlight something that you said very early on there, early in our conversation, which is that the students you guys are working with at Fortuna are generally somewhere between 25 and 29 years of age. So while there are a couple of programs that allow you to get your MBA maybe as a fifth year add-on or to, um, you know, have a special early entrance. Um, that yeah. is not most MBA programs, right? They are mostly looking for students to leave college, get some experience, and then come back and get their business degrees. That is correct. There are, of the M7 schools, though, which are the top-ranked U.S. schools, many of them do offer this opportunity. You're admitted as a senior. They basically say, go out and do something really interesting and, you know, and fulfilling for, for three to four years and then come back. Um, and, mm-hmm. these, and these, the terms of that agreement will vary. But it's a way to kind of, you know, go through this process early and then know that you're going to go to business school in, in, in that period of time. Um, the caveat, though, is that sometimes students that are co- college seniors might not have enough to talk about in the framework of their applications. And so they're much better candidates a little farther on, on the road. Yes, um, but right. But, you know, every year we, we probably work with, a, a you know, 5% of our applicant pool is probably students that are, that are considering this and going through this process. Right. And I, I think this is a lot for me, like the BSMD medical school programs, which is yes. they're out there, right? But they are not for every student. They are highly, highly selective. And I do think that most students are better off waiting and applying to medical school mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at a later point in college or even after college. And I think same thing probably with MBA, right, is you what you just said really resonates with me that you will likely have more options because you will have graduated, yeah. you'll be able to do more interesting things, and that will open things up. Without a doubt. I mean, you have some of the questions you're answering are really talking about leadership experiences you've had or hurdles that you faced. And you know, it's 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 just the more time that you experience, you're in the world, the more opportunities you have to think and reflect on on those kinds of um, experiences. Right. So I would yes, I would agree with you. A majority of people applying are sort of you know three to five years into their under into their work experience, looking for the next step. Finding the MBA is sort of you know the the crossroads to their to their next opportunity. So with that in mind, um, my last question for you is. If we have uh, listeners who are in college and parents of um, students listening who are in college, what can those, if, if, if you are a student, you're in college, you're thinking about how to get ready for the MBA application process, um, what should they be thinking about doing? What should they be doing? Mm-hmm. 
So one very pragmatic thing is to take one of the exams that I had mentioned, the GRE or the GMAT. They're equally as respected by business schools. It is a lot easier to study for these while you're still in study mode. It is a lot harder if you're working 70 hours a week to carve out the time to study for those exams. So Mm -hmm. the exams are good for five years. Never a bad idea to get it out of the way during your, your junior or your senior year of college. Something else that students can do is really find things at their university that they care deeply about and commit to them. So that doesn't mean that you have to be the president of, um, you know, the gymnastics team or the mm-hmm. captain, but it means that you are consistently involved in the gymnastics team and that you were I'm using that as an example. It could be anything. It could be the debate team. It could be um, a part-time job that you have. Much like in high school when you're looking for demonstrated, you know, and continued commitment, that Mm -hmm. is certainly something that business schools like to see on the undergrad level. They don't really care what it is that you've done in college. do want to see that you found something or several things that you care about and you spend time on and you're committed to. And if those things have given you leadership opportunities, that's terrific. Um, So certainly that is something that that schools really like to see. Um, Without a doubt, having something quantitative in your background is going to be very helpful. So for those of you that are not studying business undergrad and your English majors or your history majors, political science, most business schools will want to see either statistics, finance, or accounting. That is not a prerequisite, but it certainly can help show admissions offices that you have a quantitative ability. So if you have some time over the summer or you have extra room in your schedule, I would encourage you to explore that. Far better to take it when you've got support all around you, you've got people that have gone through it, maybe you've got some tutoring. Um, you know, so, so these three classes are sort of deemed fairly fundamental, um, and you're going to be taking them in business school anyway, so never a bad idea to you know, sort of get it, get it going while you're an undergrad. Right. The last thing I will say is to think about how you're spending your time um, part-time over the summer. Are you, are you having exposure to internships that might eventually turn into a full-time position? Are you having exposure to things that you thought, well, I I don't know if I really want to do this, but I'm going to give it a try. So I know that, you know, the the summers are are a great time to relax and to have some time for yourself and do things perhaps that, that, um, you know, don't necessarily pay very well or are local. But if you have an opportunity to have an internship that's really going to push you, I, I, I always tell students, I think that you should go for it because it might be a little uncomfortable but you never know where it's going to lead. Um, and so I, I don't mean that that means you should run and get a consulting position over the summer or a banking position over the summer, but really to take the time to research things that might appeal to you and, and try to, to experience that over that 10- or 12-week period because that really will begin um, the rollout of your career progression from that point and eventually will be important when you, when you do decide to apply to business school. Judith, as always, such great suggestions and really great insight into um, the MBA and how to think about it, how to prepare for it. Um, I do want to remind our listeners that you are um, doing kind of what we do at College Coach, not kind of, you are. You do what we do at College Coach, but you do it for MBAs with, and your company is Fortuna Admissions. Um, So if you're thinking about an MBA, please Check them out and uh, let them know you you heard Judith on the podcast. Um, Thank you so much. I, Beth, it's always great to spend time with you. You and I go way back, and it's always terrific yeah. to, to be on this show with you and to, to be of help to um, students and families out there that are thinking about next steps down the road. 
Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Judith. And we're going to be back a in a pleasure. few. And we're going to be talking about not taking the first offer from a college. So stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. Uh, in this segment today, we're going to talk a little bit about um, when to accept decision from college, when to make your decision about where you're going to attend school. And um, for students who got, there are a lot of students out there who got early answers, some of them to early decision programs, which is binding, which means, yay, you're going there. Um, but certainly lots of students got answers from schools where their programs were not binding. So might have been early action, could have been priority, could have been a rolling admissions school. Um, so students might have offers from some schools, um, but they may still be waiting for offers from other schools. And um, unless you're positive that one of those early answers is the school you for sure want to go to, uh, it could be, you know, ideally, you're just going to have those answers and, uh, in a, you know, put them to the side, wait for everything else to come in, and then make your call. But it might seem very appealing to um, to accept that first offer. And so um, talking to us today is my colleague and friend, Alex Bickford, who is a former financial aid officer at Southern New Hampshire University, and who has been talking to families and students for years about this topic of paying for college and and figuring out how much you're going to end up paying. And uh, I think that uh, Alex has some good insight to share with us. So welcome, Alex. How are you? I'm doing well, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And happy to have you on the show today. Um, And I I think the idea for this segment started with 
the fact that we do start to get lots of questions from parents at this time of the year around, you know, well, the school is encouraging us to deposit now and it's a pretty good offer. Maybe we should. Um, So I think my first question for you is something that we've seen come through frequently and um, a parent basically saying, hey, my daughter's top choice school has told us to deposit early to get the best choice of housing. We don't know yet if she's going to qualify for any scholarships or for any, um, you know, anything special beyond the financial aid that maybe the family already qualifies for. So what do you suggest in a scenario like that? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a tough scenario, and actually, it's, it seems to be good timing. I was working with a family today that had a similar scenario in which the student had a number of different offers and did have some scholarship offers, um, but their top choice school was just a little bit more expensive. And so the conversation was really surrounding, okay, what's our approach? And, and I think the same goes for folks who are waiting on either need-based financial aid or scholarships is okay, so do we deposit now because of those classes, because of those room situations, or, or what should the approach be? And generally speaking, my approach is that once we have all the offers in, once we have all kind of the financial aid offers, financial aid decisions in, we can reapproach the schools, try to see if we, there's any room to work there and get a little bit more money. Uh, but generally, if you deposit, all your leverage goes away. And so whether it's, yeah, so whether it's now or whether it's in the future, if you're going to try to negotiate and try to get these offers to be improved somewhat, I'm generally a fan of doing it early on and then reassessing whether or not you feel comfortable with that financial state of the school. Because amazingly, Beth, we've seen in the past couple of years that schools that just quite aren't quite getting the numbers that they hope to get in, this, in their freshman population, they're coming mm-hmm. back as late as April with additional offers for students who haven't yet deposited. Students who haven't even asked for more money uh, are getting offers for more aid uh, because that school is trying to fill out their freshman class. So it pays to negotiate early, but it also pays to wait. Exactly. And I know I get that it can be really stressful, especially if you have a top choice school and maybe you have a vision of where you absolutely must live. That's a big one that colleges can, and I'm not sure it's really the college's fault from the perspective of students developing a favorite in terms of a dorm they want to be in and so, or something like that. But the reality is none of that does you any good if you can't really afford it or if it's really, really, really going to stretch you to afford it. And if you had simply waited, you might have had, had a much more comfortable fit, right, from a financial perspective. Um, right. And to the college fit until it's a fi- financial fit for the family, right? That's exactly right. And to those parents who are sort of saying, well, but my daughter really wants to be in this particular dorm. Let me tell you what. When I was a freshman in college, I did not get my top (laughs) choice of dorm. I didn't even get like my third choice of dorm. And um, of course, I made a couple of friends that have are still my friends in that less than ideal dorm. And even better, they opened up a brand new dorm my second semester of college. I moved into that dorm and everybody on campus wished they lived in that dorm. So Let's get away from the idea. Even in the end, it's nine months, right? Exactly. Exactly. So even if I had been stuck in that dorm for the whole entirety of my freshman year, it still would have been over at the end of my freshman year. So, um, okay. So then 
What about, this is an interesting thing that I I don't think I have ever heard uh, of, but I bet you've heard more than once, which is, what about trying to get a better financial aid offer from a college that your child isn't interested in? What would be the purpose of that, and do you recommend it? Yeah, so I generally, listen, it's always great to have leverage. It's always great to go to your top two or three colleges um, with competition, uh, on price and on academic uh, kind of setting uh, school for you. So it's always great to have that leverage, but I'd never want to negotiate with a school uh, that your child really doesn't have interest in. I feel like that's doing a disservice to the college, uh, and it's, it's in the end doing somewhat of a dis- disservice to you. It's taking up time uh, that is valuable to you and valuable to the college that, uh, you know, I think is better spent elsewhere. So ways the student and the family can use that time would be reaffirming their interest or reaffirming the student's interest in their top two or three colleges that are really still kind of in the conversation that eventually you will negotiate with and will try to get a better offer from to ensure to them that, hey, listen, I really want to go here. So that might mean reaching out to a professor of the department that you're looking to go to, talking to your admissions officer and having another conversation surrounding kind of the culture within the school. Anything that you can do to show that school that you want to go there, much Mm -hmm. like you, Beth, will talk about with a student in the admissions process, schools don't want to give a student more money uh, unless that student is then going to deposit. So, So the answer I would say is don't negotiate with a school that you don't like. Um, but instead show interest in schools that you do. Right. I think that's really good advice, and I like it for many reasons, and probably the big one is just being ethical. What, you know, it is nice to have leverage, but but I just, it just doesn't feel good to be negotiating and potentially taking money away from a student who really sure. wants to go to that school, right, that your child likes, because if they're giving it to you, they cannot give it to that other student. And if by the time right. you say, oh, by the way, I didn't actually want that, we're not coming, it may be too late right. to give it to that other student. So I don't know. It's to me that so falls in the, under in the, the that's exactly what? it. In, in the end, the college keeps a couple more dollars because you decided not to go there, and these other students lose out. Uh, right. And so, yeah, you're exactly right, Beth. Feels like being a good citizen is that's one of the reasons to to not do that. Right. Um, what about families where they know they don't qualify for financial aid? So they have not filled out any of the forms, um, but then maybe a school asks them to fill out a financial aid form before they reassess the merit that they're offering to that student. Um, And I'm assuming when we talk about reassessing, that means maybe they got some merit, but now they're asking for more. Is that something you recommend families do? I I mean, I would guess if the school's asking you to do it and you want more, you probably have to do it, right? (laughs) Right, and so th- that one, th- that one's kind of tough, and it really depends on the school. So we'll certainly see in schools out there a couple different scenarios, reasons why you might want to consider filling out the financial aid form. So I saw uh, just last week a couple of financial aid awards that I was reviewing had actually a student who just filed the financial aid paperwork got a $500 scholarship or $500, they called it the FAFSA filer grant. Uh, so in and of itself, if you can file the form and get $500, why not? Why not? Uh, right. But then a lot of schools that are, when you're asking for more money, even if you go to them and say, hey, listen, we're not going to qualify for need-based financial aid, they want to they see that you're being proactive, 
that you are trying to find any resource you can to make those final few dollars work. Uh, and doing the financial aid forms is part of that. So with a lot of schools, they might come back and say, hey, geez, you know, this student really is going that extra mile. They're considering borrowing student loans. They're considering kind of these less ideal ways to fund this college. Uh, so they're really working at it versus a student who is just sitting there and asking for more money and not really going out there and trying to find other scholarships or trying to apply for need-based financial aid. Uh, I think generally it looks better if a student does do that. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to do it right off the bat. If you're sure you're not going to qualify and, and listen, there are, it's a time for another show to debate whether you should fill out the form or not. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're at the point where you're trying to get a little bit extra money from the colleges, it might make sense to first ask them, is this a requirement to get uh, additional merit aid? Um, and if they say yes, certainly, you know, you should file the forms. Even if they say no, it might behoove you to do it because it's showing you're hustling. Right. Right. I think, you know, my guess is they're, they're thinking, well, we don't want to fill it out because we don't want them to see how much money maybe we, we really have. And, and maybe that is a downside, but the fact is that, you know, if you, if they make that a requirement of getting more merit money and that's something you really want, well, then sounds like something you'll... You'll end up needing to but, do. But it, right. And it may not be a downside, actually. You know, for some schools, I guess, it, I, I guess it could be. But for a lot of schools, if they see a family is making reasonable money, they're looking and saying, geez, then we know this student is going to graduate from here with little debt. Mm-hmm. That helps our mm-hmm. stats. We love students who graduate with very little debt. Uh, so the family might pay, let's say, two or $3,000 less to come here. But we get a student that we know is going to come that is going to graduate with no debt. We're going to make this family happy. Maybe they've got other kids who might come here in the future, or Mm -hmm. maybe later on in life they become a donor family. So in those situations, uh, it may not be uh, a negative at all to fill out the forms and kind of reveal some things. Uh, Now, there are lots of pros and cons to this, and it it really depends on each individual student's circumstance. Uh, But that might be one reason to kind of follow through and do that. Got it. I think that's that's good advice. Alex, anything else that you wanted to share about this particular topic um, before we wrap up? It just that it never hurts to ask. The worst case scenario is the scenario you're in today. So if you go back, you ask for a little bit more, uh, and, and the school comes back and says, I'm sorry, there's nothing else we can do. Well, that's where you're at. They're never going to withdraw the student's admission. They're never going to put you, like, down in priority or anything like that. Uh, you're going to be in the same situation you are today. So I think it always behooves you to take that step and, and see if anything comes of it. Yeah, I, I agree. And for our listeners, too, every year um, we do at least two shows, one on um, – figuring out negotiating additional financial aid or asking for more financial aid and another on um, asking for negotiating additional merit money. Um, We typically do that in the spring. Um, So if you want to look in the springtime last year, um, and you could also search in our blog for those topics and it will link to, it will tell you which podcast that that happened in last year. Um, But then also we'll be doing that in the spring this year. So um, more, more information to come on this. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Beth. It was great talking to you. You too. And to our listeners, do not go away. When we come back, we're going to be talking about test optional policies at schools and helping you understand a little bit more about how this works and whether or not it's a good idea to take advantage of that. So don't go away. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm excited to introduce my colleague, Sarah Calvert-Cabrome, who is a former admissions officer at Lewis and Clark College, where she actually also earned her undergraduate degree and was a leader at Northeastern's NUN program. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, and thanks so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Yes, of course. All right, so we are talking about test optional, and I feel like test optional is really something that people struggle with. So um, why don't Mm -hmm. we start with something really basic? What is test optional? What does it mean for a school when they consider themselves test optional? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll first say that Lewis and Clark College, where I worked for several years, has been test optional for over 20 years. So this is something I've worked with a lot. In in general, broadly speaking, test optional means that there are usually options to apply for admission using test scores or not. The reason that this exists is that a lot of colleges are increasingly acknowledging that some students can be excellent in high school and in the classroom. They're great students. They have a lot to offer. But for a lot of reasons, which we can discuss in a little bit, they are not as strong as as standardized test takers. So the SAT or ACT may not be indicative of their abilities in college. So they want to empower students to put their best version of their application forward. So it's applying for admission and sometimes at certain schools merit scholarships without using test scores. What's really important to know, though, because you alluded to the fact that it's confusing for people, is that at any college where they give you the option to apply without test scores, 
the students' academic performance in high school, so their transcripts, how much they challenge themselves in their classes, their grades, etc., become even more important than usual because they don't have the data from the test scores to go off of. So their grades, how much they challenge themselves, the courses that they opt into become the pivotal document to evaluate if they are ready to um, succeed at the college that they are applying to. Um, the part that confuses families that I've had many families ask me is, oh, my student's not a good test taker. Should they apply test optional? And then I find out that, oh, geez, they have B and C grades or they haven't challenged themselves in the courses they've taken. So that note about really having strong grades, a good transcript and what that college is looking for is really important. Yeah, I mean, I think a really key element here is that just by eliminating one piece, you make other pieces more important. But if if everything is mm-hmm. fairly mediocre from the college's perspective, right? They're looking for A, right. and you or they're looking for X, and you're delivering Y. Um, just eliminating one of those pieces that isn't quite what they want does not suddenly make the other pieces better. It just means they're also not what they're looking for. It is it is Correct. really valuable when it's valuable, I think, in two important re- places. One where the testing is not in line with everything else. And then the other would be if you have a philosophical uh, feeling mm-hmm. about standardized testing, you don't agree with it, you don't like it. What it also tells you is that perhaps this college is philosophically aligned with you as well in the fact that they are also finding that they don't think standardized testing is an appropriate way to evaluate students um, or necessary for every student in order to make a decision. So I think that's an an interesting thing to think about when we think about test optional. Definitely. Um, And I actually worked with a lot of applicants at Lewis and Clark who were actually strong testers, test takers. They just philosophically didn't agree. So that is an excellent point. Yeah, and, and and the other thing that I find a lot of that I'd love for us to talk about that a lot of people, um, well, I find this in general is that people mis- don't trust the schools. They don't believe the schools mm-hmm. mean what they say when they say it, right? So, for example, mm-hmm. when a school says they're need-blind in their admissions policies, people don't believe it. And yet, I can tell you, having worked right. in need-blind admissions, it's true, Financial aid was yep. zero part of the conversation when we were considering an applicant for um, admission. In the same way, um, what do you say to parents who say, well, the school says they're test optional, but obviously, or we still think we're going to be at a disadvantage, or my child will be at a disadvantage, or the mm-hmm. student thinks they'll be at a disadvantage if they don't submit test scores? What's your take on that? Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you that, in my experience, colleges really do mean what they say, and they wouldn't offer test optional if they didn't have a equal pathway to fairly evaluate candidacy. What I see across the board and colleagues that I know at colleges who have test optional pathways is that, as I mentioned earlier, they're going to put a lot more emphasis on the transcript and everything else. Um, but internally, colleges have ways that, at all colleges, they assess how challenging is a student's curriculum in high school? So the classes they take, what are the grades, what are any other compelling factors, such as their activities, sports, music, etc., 
cetera. Um, and they assess and quantify all of that. And so they would not offer a test optional pathway if they didn't have a way in their own systems to fairly assess the abilities of those students. So I, I agree with you what you were referring to, that if a college offers this and they say it, that 100% trust that. That being said, I always encourage students and families to reach out to colleges and talk to the admissions officers to have a conversation if they have questions about if test optional is the right pathway for their students and to read on their their website what they're looking for in, in, in applicants. Um, mm-hmm. Colleges are pretty transparent about things like how many years of each academic subject they're looking for, the rigor of the curriculum they tend to see in their admitted students. Um, yes, you cannot find, you know, a statistic like you can an average SAT score on a website as easily as the general courses successful applicants take. But admissions officers are very happy to explain that to students. And in general, they offer tests optional because they really do want to allow the student to submit their best possible application. Right. And I love that point about calling the college because um, I see it all the time. So I'm on a couple of Facebook groups that are um, closed groups for admissions professionals and people who do the work that we do. And people Mm -hmm. will will post on there, well, my student has this score. Should she submit it to the college? And people, a lot of people will speculate. And then every, you know, few comments, someone will say, you should call the college. And it really is the best advice. Just call because they, yep. you, I, generally speaking, they will be fairly transparent. They will say, you know, they might even say, well, what do you have? And then the student could say, and they might not say, I wouldn't submit that, but they might say, you know, that's maybe that's not in our middle 50% is X and that's below that yep. or, you know, so, so it, it's never a bad idea to just call and to ask that question. Um, Because one thing we've also heard from uh, admissions officers who work for test optional schools is that if you send the scores, they have to consider them. You haven't, if you haven't checked the box that you're going test optional, well, then they're there and they have to consider them. And they would prefer if they're not as strong not to have them because then they don't have to worry about someone saying, well, Look at the test score, though. I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. If there's no test score, then they, you know, then that doesn't interfere, right? Right. And in addition to not looking at those test scores, an added value of reaching out to colleges is that some colleges don't say, okay, just don't send us the test scores. They actually have additional requirements. Um, So some colleges in place of test scores will say, okay, you don't have to send us test scores if you give us some graded work samples and they have specific criteria. Um, Some colleges like Lewis and Clark, where I worked, have very specific requirements for teacher letters of recommendation if there are no test scores. So those are good pieces of information and conversations to be ahead of and to make sure that you're putting that best application forward. Um, I'll also loop back to, you referenced middle 50% ranges of test scores. Before calling the college, what I always recommend is looking at the published data, which is usually on the college website or on a search engine like Big Future that the college board offers, and see of the previous year's admitted class, what were those middle 50% or average rank um, scores for the SAT or ACT, so you can know where your student sits vis-a-vis that student who's 
typically admitted, and that's a good starting data point to have in mind when approaching these conversations. Right, exactly. So if you know off the top already, if you know you're below the middle 50%, that's probably a sign that um, if the rest is strong, this might be a place where you could improve your chances by not submitting your test scores. So here's Mm -hmm. something that in in my time doing this work, which it's been a while now, um, and when I worked at Penn and now since I've been working at College Coach, the question will come up from parents, you know, well, you know, what about is this, do you anticipate being ever making testing optional or are you seeing lots and lots mm-hmm. of colleges go test optional? And, um, you know, what my take has been that, hey, we see a couple every year and, and but I still think, and I actually do still believe this for my own child who is a mm-hmm. sophomore in high school, he's probably going to be needed to take standardized testing. And I, I don't think they're going away entirely, but I do feel mm-hmm. like we've seen it pick up steam a little bit more in the past couple of years. What's your sense of that? And is there something you mm-hmm. could pinpoint or point to as this seems to be a little bit of a turning point? Yeah, I, I think that you probably agree that in the summer of 2018, when the University of Chicago announced that they were going test optional, that definitely triggered a big acknowledgement and conversation around this topic because a very well-known prestigious institution went test optional. So I think mm-hmm. that that very likely empowered a lot of colleges to jump into something that they were thinking about for a while. Um, one thing that I think is really healthy is that we are in a time where our students are under a lot of pressure, and I think that students, colleges, teachers, et cetera, are really starting to think critically about, okay, of all the pressure we're under, what what do we value? What should we be thinking about? Another consideration is um, how do we make education accessible for all types of learners? And a lot of studies are showing that standardized testing is not always the best indicator of academic ability for students with learning disabilities or some learning differences, sometimes for students where English is not the primary language spoken at home. Um, Some students have testing anxiety, but when it comes to the real world of going to school, doing their work, thriving in internships and jobs, et cetera, they can be phenomenal. So I think that there's a enhanced awareness of that and all of those those dynamics. I agree with you, though, that for at least the foreseeable future, a lot of schools, if most schools, will continue to lean on testing. Um, there are some big conversations happening with a committee of faculty at the University of California system. Uh, they have yet to announce the outcome, but I think that it's likely that they are going to not become test optional, but probably put a little less. Um, emphasis on standardized testing in the coming years, and so we'll likely have to have this conversation in the next year or two and see what the trickle is from that, since they are such a big focus and driving factor in higher education in the U.S. One resource that I recommend for families, if you're thinking, ooh, this, this sounds like my student, is that it's it's really hard to keep up on all of it, and there's a really great um, nonprofit website called Fair Test, F-A-I-R-T-E-S-T-E, T-E-S-T, sorry, fairtest.org. And they maintain a list that is kept pretty up to date 
of all of the colleges in the United States that do either test optional or have publicly stated that they de-emphasize the role of uh, test scores, et cetera, in their process. And you can click to sort it by state. And that could be an excellent tool for families um, to keep up on which schools fit that. Because, yes, for your son and for most students, Standardized testing will continue to be a big part of the process, but for a lot of students who it's a real struggle, it doesn't have to be. There are increasingly so many colleges that I think that there are ways that we can reframe this process and look for colleges that are test optional specifically. Yeah, and, and what's interesting to me about fairtest.org is that website is a really great resource, and it is also their mission to you know, kind of eliminate standardized testing. So they're out there doing a lot of advocating and um, when there are issues with testing. And I think one of the other things that is um, getting in in into the mix with schools increasingly considering at least going test optional is the um, the number of cheating problems that they're having. Not, you know, the varsity blues is sort of, Uh, one side of it, but really the bigger issue is that there isn't a lot of test security. And so there's a lot of sharing Mm -hmm. of tests, particularly internationally, that they cannot seem to get a handle on. And so until they can get a handle on that, Mm -hmm. I do think that they are going to be um, vulnerable. But Sarah, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. And these are some great insights, especially from someone who worked at a school where they were test optional. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, thanks to all of my guests this week as well. Um, next week, I'm back. Woohoo! I'm very excited. I always like to host a couple of shows in a row. I get in a bit of a groove. Um, next, uh, in next week's show, we're actually going to be talking about the admissions and financial impact of twins and multiples applying to college at the same time, maybe applying to the same colleges, um, and then, of course, attending college at the same time, which is a huge strain on pocketbooks. Um, and then we'll also be talking about what to do if you haven't submitted any applications yet. Believe it or not, it is still possible that you could be going to college in the fall. Um, if you have questions, send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Also would love it if you subscribed to our blog. And if you go to our website, getintocollege.com, you could sign up for the blog there. Um, and there's a little thing you can click at the top, blog. But you could also go directly to the blog blog.getintocollege.com. This is also a great way to search our archives because we blog about every single podcast that we do. So if you search there, um, you'll find the blog that accompanies the podcast. You will see the date that the podcast aired, and then you can go right to Voice America um, and find it. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.